0: as a point of, of clarity uh, i noticed that i ha- i have an esv bible here and it says slaves not bond ser- servants and i have an esv bible that's a few years newer that says bond servants and uh, so you guys your text may say one or the other the word is slaves and the greek bond servant was the most common type of slave of the day so you can see how the word could uh, how they how they could change the translation a little bit to be a little more accurate now Last week, as we looked at the first part of this section, and, uh, and many weren't here because it was Memorial Day weekend, um, and it's, you, you might want to go back and listen to that sermon because it really fits. But as we listened to the first part of it last week, we were challenged by, uh, uh, about a very deep-seated American creed. And that's the basic idea that human happiness and flourishing is found in, in freedom and independence. When we're free to just be our unrestrained selves, then we will be kind of fulfilled. And thus to be subordinate uh, to another person or to some system that, that might restrain us is to be diminished and, and lesser and probably oppressed. We need total personal freedom but the apostle paul demonstrates here in this larger section that such an idea is not true he says that unrestrained free to be me kind of freedom in our lives is not not good because we have broken and sinful hearts so you don't want the the unrestrained me i will damage you and vice versa so this American creed of, of total personal freedom has devastated the family unit because we think that the family unit is the place for us to really practice that, right? Let down our hair, be ourselves, and therefore those closest of relationships, they, they incur the unfiltered us, and the results are in. It's bad, and everybody's in therapy about what happened in their families, No, the Apostle Paul says the opposite is true. He says personal flourishing and fulfillment is actually found in submission. We need restraint on our our broken, sinful lives to kind of hem us in. We need to give ourselves over independence on another. We need to submit our lives under God's order to, to really flourish. Uh, the best illustration I have for this is a, is a knee brace. A friend of mine, and it uh, was a very good college soccer player, played at Wheaton College. He, he blew his knee out freshman year, and that knee was just bad. It would go any direction. If he set it down, he couldn't, wasn't stable on it. That knee could go anywhere. So they did some surgeries, but the main thing they did is they gave him this brace, like titanium exoskeleton That would go on the outside and strap that thing on and would only let his knee move as it should. And suddenly, that restraint gave him freedom. He was able to play, he was able to run, to walk, to play out his college career and flourish. The brace that restricted the brokenness of his knee gave him freedom to flourish. Now, last week... Paul applied this truth directly into the Colossians' families' lives. He called them to let their autonomy and freedom to kind of put aside and submit their lives to those God had placed over them. Unflinchingly, he called wives to submit to their husbands, not because they're lesser or they're weaker, but because their husbands are called to love them and serve them. And gentleness. He called children to obey their parents, not because they're lesser beings, but because their parents were called to serve them for their good. In each case, they were to subordinate their lives to another who was to serve them for their good. Paul says this is God's good order for families to flourish, to kind of undo all the damage as God is redeeming these disintegrating families that are ravished by their unrestrained freedom. They need to submit within these relationships. And if you think about it, it makes perfect sense because this is the very structure of the gospel. God sends his son, Jesus, down to save us, to give his life for our good. And how do we receive that salvation? We submit to him as our master as the victorious king that he is in our lives, and we receive all the goodness. This is the Christian life from the get-go, submitting our lives under God's authority in order to receive his goodness in our lives. Now, as we come to today's text, Paul has one more familial relationship to address. Note the whole place is rules for Christians' households, for the whole family. The whole text is titled that. And we did last week, wives and husbands, and we did parents and children. And then we get to verse 22, and he says this, Slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. Now that kind of catches us off guard, doesn't it? First, We don't expect slaves to be addressed as part of the family unit, right? We aren't sitting here with families with the household slave at the end of the pew, are we? That's kind of a shocker to us. But what we need to understand is in those days, uh, in Roman society, 80 to 90% of people had either been a slave or were a slave or had been a slave. So it was just in the fabric of their society. Slaves and bond servants were enmeshed in everything. In fact, as Paul is speaking, guess who's sitting in the room listening? Jay preached a sermon on Philemon, the book of Philemon. He preached a couple of sermons a few weeks, well, a month ago or so. How long, how long ago was it? I don't know. What was it about? Well, a big part of it was about Onesimus, this runaway slave who had run away from his master in Colossae, had ended up in jail in Rome with Paul, gets saved, goes back to Colossae, where meanwhile, his slave master, Philemon, had gotten saved. And they're reconciling. And people believe that this letter, this church, was meeting in Philemon's home. They're sitting together, that slave master and that slave, as Paul gives this command. So Paul's keeping it very real here. So it catches us off guard, first of all, because we think, "What are slaves doing with the family unit?" And secondly, what catches us off guard, I think, the most, is that Paul seems to address these slave master relationships as if they're normal and even okay. He doesn't automatically condemn them or pretend like they're not happening. He rather he speaks right into the relationship. Almost in a condoning way, doesn't he? And this is a problem for us, isn't it? Because across the board, I think we would all agree that slavery is wrong and evil. I hope so. I mean, it's very clear in Scripture that all men are made in God's image and are thus of equal dignity and worth before him. So we can't just accept this institution as as okay and, and, and normal, can we? Now, I think we have to stop for a minute and do a little bit of thinking here. Because this is where many people begin to dismiss the Apostle Paul. In fact, it's the basis for them to dismiss his teaching on all kinds of things, right? Because if he's wrong on this, if he can't see the evil of slavery because of his cultural context where it's just everywhere and it seems normal... So he he can't really see how wrong it is. If that's true, what else of his teachings is just culturally bound, just culturally relative? His teaching on on roles in marriage, which we just talked about last week, maybe it just reflects the chauvinism of his time, just this unenlightened pre-feminism age, right? His views on sexual morality. Maybe they can be dismissed as merely indicative of of the ignorance of the times and to the causes of different sexual predilections. They just didn't know. It's a persuasive line of of thinking. Kind of makes sense. In fact, this puts all of Scripture in question, really. Are, Are we just more enlightened now? And we have to, to make some corrections to the scriptures and even condemnations. We need to fix the Bible a little. So that when we say, this is the word of the Lord here, we just add, well, sort of. After we fix fixed a few things. Well, let me give us a few tips to help us hear this scripture. To help us read it, not just dismiss it Immediately. That's, a, that's going to be the shape of the sermon. We're going to have two tips for hearing this text and then two principles to take away from it. So the first tip for hearing this text, and that is be careful and humble before God's word. To assume that as we come to something in the Bible that seems out of sync with our historic moment and the values of our day, To assume in that that the Bible is flawed or or that we clearly know better than the Apostle Paul and the different apostles who were carried along by our timeless God of truth who's beyond culture, to assume, no, no, this has got to be wrong, is astonishingly arrogant. As John Woodhouse puts it, it's the ultimate in cultural imperialism. We've got it right now in our cultural moment. Such an approach to the scriptures is is really understandable coming from the world. But as Christians, we must not start with the assumption that the problem is here with the word. We need to start with the assumption that the problem might be here and here with my thinking, with my understanding, with my values, with my sinful heart. If we start the other way, then the Bible will never be able to challenge and critique our lives. Because as soon as it does, I just go, well, it just doesn't understand. I understand more. I'm more enlightened. So it can never be transformative. Because we won't sit under it. We must come humbly and prayerfully before God's word, especially when it is challenging Asking him to help us understand and perhaps see ourselves. Which brings me to tip number two. We need to be, tip number two, we need to be aware of our own bigotries and biases that we bring to reading the text. The cultural glasses that we have on and see everything through. We think they're bigoted, so are we. Think about it with this text. When we come to this text, what's our framework for understanding the word slavery? What's our framework? What do I read that word through? Which glasses? American colonial slavery. Slavery wherein people were kidnapped and forced into labor, sold as property, chained and beaten and abused. Do you know the Bible clearly condemns such practices in no uncertain terms? In Deuteronomy 24-7, it says to kidnap people and to bring them into slavery is a uh, a crime punishable by death. In First 1 Timothy 1:10 it lists enslaving, amongst all this list of immorality enslaving. Paul is talking about something completely different here. You see, there were three main kinds of slavery in those days. That's where we get the term, that's why you, you get the term bond servant put in here. They're trying to catch that nuance. First, there was what we might call apprentice slavery. In this instance, a person might enter into a contract with, with, a, with a skilled person, maybe a person who has no skills, has no education. They can enter into a contract with a person who has skill for a period of, to- period of time to work for them as an apprentice to gain those skills. They don't work for pay. Commonly they got room and board. It was a contract and they were bound to that contract as a servant, as a bond servant, a slave. Second, there was personal debt slavery in order to pay off a debt. To somebody, you could work for them. You could enter into a contract for a period of time where you are their slave, their servant, and they are responsible for you to pay off that debt. It was an allotted time of servitude. People even entered into this to earn Roman citizenship. They would come in, they want to be a Roman citizen, they could enter into a period, they had no money to pay, nothing to do with it, they could enter into a period of, of slavery, of servitude. So there was apprentice slavery there was personal debt slavery, and there was criminal debt slavery, wherein a person was incarcerated and forced to work to pay off their crime against society. Most prisoners of war, that's where many of the slaves came from, they had committed atrocities against that society, they were paying it off. That's why 89 percent of the Roman Empire was slaves. Now, two things to recognize about this. First of all, just because these kind of uh, relate, slavery relationships could be fairly equitable doesn't mean they were always practiced right. Doesn't mean that the slave owner wasn't abusing his position, or the slave might not keep their side of the contract and run away. That's what we saw with Anisimus, and that's what Paul is addressing here. Right? How to redeem these kind of uh, servitude relationships? Secondly, we need to recognize that we have situations just like this today. We have these same slaveries. We have apprenticeship slavery. One of them, it's called the military. You are in a contractual relationship, you must fulfill. You are learning certain skills through that relationship. And if you bail out of it and you go AWOL, you can be put in jail. That's an apprenticeship slavery. We just don't call it that. We have personal debt slavery. Working to pay back a loan. You are bound by law. Even a credit card loan. The collectors can come. It gives a a new meaning to, you know, MasterCard. (laughs) Think of all the Student loans you pay back that you can pay back by doing service for free. It's a contract. It's a contractual debt slavery. And of course, we still have criminal debt slavery. We call it jail. And in some states, you see them working along the side of the road. They're not getting paid, they're enslaved, paying off their debt to society. So you see, Paul, as he's speaking into their world, into this ancient world, guess what? We don't have to translate it. He speaks right into our world. Our world of of debt obligation and apprenticeships and contractual work and military service and debts to society. It's not so different. We don't need to dismiss this text as irrelevant. We just need to read it correctly in its historical context, and it speaks right into our world with relevance. Pay your masters. We are to pay our debts. We are to keep our contracts. We are to fulfill our service, Christians. Now, of course, what Paul says here, the principles that he gives as to how to live within these hard, subordinistic relationships, because they are hard at times, it applies even more to the easy ones in our lives, right? We can transfer this through to those easier rela- worker boss. There's an authoritarian relationship, not slavery, but we can apply the principles. Student to teacher. Any relationship where we're called to submit to an authority. And we find it challenging. So we've seen some, some tips for reading. Now here's the principles he gives for them to operate in these relationships in Christ. And the first one we see is this. He says to the slaves, to the bond servants, to the worker, we are to remember, Christians, that we're actually working for the Lord look at verse 22 slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters not by way of eye service as people pleasers but with sincerity of heart fearing the Lord as believers we have submitted our lives to Christ he's our true master right note that he calls their their slave masters here what does he call them? Their earthly masters. It's literally their masters according to the flesh. He's letting them know there's, there's a domain for that relationship and it's fairly limited. He says, Don't serve in fear of them, serve fearing the Lord. And if you know the Old Testament, fearing the Lord is about honoring him and loving him. Serve with an honor and love for the Lord. This is what should motivate them and encourage them, their heavenly masters. Paul sets their obedience in a whole new context. When they are struggling with some hard service task or just trying to be diligent and responsible and honest as a, as a worker, they are to look past their earthly masters to the Lord himself, especially if the earthly master is hard. the Lord They are to look to the Lord God who, who made them and gave them life, And who saved them by sacrificing everything, taking on the form of a servant, going to the cross to redeem their life from the pit, making them his sons. That's who they're ultimately serving with their life. That's who they're honoring in the integrity of their work. Christians, we aren't ultimately about pleasing our commander or our coach or our boss or our parent, but our true Lord. Thus Paul says we should work, knowing that we should work heartily and with a sincerity of heart in whatever circumstances we are in. I love a little illustration in verse 22. What's his illustration? It's not to work... Uh, by way of eye service, right, as people pleasers. I don't know what they do in uh, gym class these days, but back when I was in gym class, P.E., and we still had to wear the little shirt and shorts and everything, which was humiliating enough, but they would have an exercise time in the gym. The coach would stand, would stand at the front of the gym and everybody would be lined up and it would be, you know, jumping jack time and he'd say, do your jumping jacks. And the coach, he would look this way or the gym teacher would look this way and kind of scan across the gym as everybody's doing their jumping jacks and there's the count. And it would always go like this. Scan, everybody's doing their jumping jacks and as he moves away, the people on this side. <laughs> and then his eyes come back and it's... It's the same with the push ups. You could just watch it. It was like a wave across the gym. We were eye pleasers. He's saying, No, no, that's not how we do our work. That's not how we serve. There's, there's to be an integrity and a sincerity to our work that's consistent all the way through because we know who we're really doing this before who's watching us. He sees and we want to honor him. That's a hard command, I think. It's a high standard. How do you work when nobody's looking? When there's no punishment for slacking because nobody will know. And when there's no reward for working extra hard because nobody will know. You see, many of the slaves of the day, as I mentioned earlier, they were apprentices. As they, literally, they apprentices, as teachers, as doctors, as administrators, as blacksmiths, every different trade you can think of. They worked for their mentor, master, and they represented his, his business. Usually, they lived within the home because, by the way, business and home worked together back then. You didn't go off to another place. You worked right out of your home. Quite often, they were, putting, they were in charge when the master left. And they could slack off. They could cheat their master, especially if they felt unappreciated or oppressed. So Paul is challenging these, these Christian slaves and bond cercers, ser, servants and, and us as workers. Remember who you're really working for. Remember that. One of my good friends Played, uh, played football at, at, at Notre Dame, and in the summer, the alumni of Notre Dame would give all the football players jobs for the summer, and uh, he had given pretty good jobs, paid pretty well, and he had been given a job down in Chicago with this big construction company with about four other players from the team, and uh, they would show up in the morning, he said, to do their work, and all the real workers would go off and work, and the football players would just go and take naps. And uh, he, he was a Christian and he was like, I, I can't do that. I, I need to work. So he would do whatever he was supposed to do, sweeping and doing some things, and they would all get on him. Because he's making him look bad. But he knew who he was really working before. Couldn't just slack off. We work before our Savior God and we, we strive in that. To do our best. We should really have a work ethic that's weird to our world, Christians. It's not about eye service. It's not about people pleasing. There should be a motivation and even a joy in our work because we don't have to work out of grudging compulsion. But with a sincere heart, the text literally says, from the soul. I love that. Now, you may say, Carrie, look, you don't know my, my situation, uh, my job situation. My boss is, he is such a jerk. And he's overreaching and he's ungrateful and he doesn't pay me enough and he overworks me and doesn't respect me. And he's like a slave master. Well, here is one tip quit. You're not a slave. But you say, well, I can't. It's, it's the job I need right now. I don't have any other way. I got to pay the bills. Okay. Well, then, remember Paul's second principle to the slaves, which is, remember your future. Don't just remember who you're really working for. Remember your future, Christians. Look at verse 23. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men, knowing that from the Lord... You will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. My friends, our service is for the Lord and our reward is from him. And it's coming. Note how it says we will receive, what does he say, an inheritance? No, it says we will receive the Inheritance. If you look back in this book at chapter 1, verse 12, you know that he's talking about the inheritance of the saints. The inheritance that Christ has received as the very Son of God. Every good and perfect gift of heaven that Jesus has received as he's gone up to be with the Father, Jesus has acquired for us. As we've bowed to become slaves of him, we've become sons of God, firstborns, inheritors of all that's his. It's our reward, and it's pretty motivating. If you're not sure, go read Revelation 21 about what heaven is like. It's pretty motivating. And on top of this, not only is reward coming... But justice. Verse 25. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Masters, treat your slaves justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. The inheritance that, uh, that we get involves. True justice. There is no status structure with God where masters get a special break and slaves have no rights like like the way it works on earth. He will judge all wrongdoers. There's no partiality. So slave masters, bosses, authorities. Those of you out there who know you have people under your authority... Treat those under you well, for God sees, and justice is coming. That's the future every Christian needs to remember as they strive in hard situations to serve the Lord in this world. Real reward and real justice is coming. We have to believe that. That's pretty motivating, if you believe it. It's pretty encouraging. Jesus himself went to the cross with the future in mind. With the inheritance in mind. That's why I had John 13 read. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father... Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. He knew he was about to die. He knew where he was going to the Father. Verse 3 Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He knew everything was his, that inheritance. What did he do? He rose from the table. And he did the lowliest of possible servant tasks. He washed their feet, demonstrating what was about to happen with his cleansing at the cross. And he said, I do this as an example for you because you follow me. He had that future before him, the inheritance before him. He didn't need to strive for status in this world. He submitted himself, even to the point of death. Paul was motivated the same way, by the way. Do you know where Paul is writing from? It's not an ivory tower telling slaves to obey their masters. He's writing as a slave. He's imprisoned. Unjustly, by the way. Yet he submitted and served joyously before the Lord. Read about the Apostle Paul. Serving as a slave of Christ. Because he's looking to his heavenly reward. Do you know how many times Paul talks about that? What he's looking to? How liberating. You see, it seems there is a fulfillment and a joy to be had in this life that is not dependent on ideas of autonomy and independence and even liberty. And whatever circumstances we find ourselves We can be free and fulfilled as we are slaves of Christ, sons of the inheritance. The one, Jesus, the one who did not hold on to status as God but took on the form of a servant, a slave, and was obedient even unto death on the cross for us set the example. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that your word is not some ancient text that is irrelevant to our modern lives and needs our fixing to be of some use. We thank you that your word is living and active and it speaks right into the real circumstances of our lives and addresses our very souls may we submit under your word this morning and let it do its work in us. May we leave here ready to serve you, to work heartily and sincerely and joyously in word and deed before you, not as pleasers of man, but to your glory. In your son's name, amen.